Hey, Consumed Listener, this is your host, Jamie Lewis. Before I start this episode, can I ask you a little favor? Will you please go to Apple Podcasts and rate and or review Consumed? It helps other like-minded people find the podcast and it gives love to the folks who sponsor it. And listen, if you don't have anything nice to say, well, just imagine me channeling your mother here, okay? Okay. Here's the episode. And thank you. It's Consumed, the conversational food and wine podcast covering the flavor of California's Central Coast and beyond. This season, I'm covering lots of different eaters, drinkers, thinkers, and makers, including a mushroom expert, the team behind San Luis Obispo County's first Michelin star, a family of winemakers, an outspoken wine and food critic, a culinary-obsessed high school student, local food activists, pupusa enthusiasts, state historians, and more. Hungry? Thirsty? Let's get consumed. Roberto Monge was born in a village near Suchito, El Salvador, and lived there until he was eight years old when his family had to flee the war-torn country of their birth. Since landing in the United States many years ago, he has poured his life into rebuilding the village of his youth wherever he lives. And that's how I met Roberto, at a barbecue in his backyard years ago, surrounded by our neighbors. Gathering people together for celebration, grieving, and marking time is an art that Roberto practices regularly. And of course, food is the thread that runs through it all. He built an earthen oven in his backyard that turns out legendary chicken. And whenever he celebrates Dia de los Muertos, like he did last weekend, and which I attended at his house, there is a tamale-making party the day before. We chatted about the importance of building a village, supporting one another, and bringing what you have to the table. Here's Roberto Monge. So great to have you here. Um, and I said as you came in, I feel so pathetic with my with my gas fire in the fireplace on this rainy day because just a couple nights ago I was at your house and um, you had some really talented folks making a fire in your backyard for Dia de los Muertos, a celebration you do every year, but they like make a fire. They don't just make a fire. It's not a casual <laughs> fire. They start it from what? What's the fire you, by friction? Fire by friction. Yeah. Thank so you. kind of the ancient matches. Yeah. So yeah, just a couple of pieces of wood, uh, usually local wood. So that was I think a mule fat spindle that does the spinning, mm-hmm. and then it was a cottonwood um, board, so fireboard. And mm-hmm. so yeah, if you just kind of spin it just right and know how to do it, you make a little coal and that you know you blow it into flame and uh, usually mugwort and then some is that uh, what it was yeah 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 okay. exactly my daughter lulu was like is he holding fire because oh right yeah it went into the that's the mugwort <laughs> yeah, the right nest, yeah yeah holding yeah, yeah. it in the nest and blowing on yeah. it and um yeah she just thought that was the crazy she thought it was like a superpower there's, is he holding fire yeah yeah there's there's something so um connective and and maybe old about fire you know because in a way it it changed us right like we were able to eat meats and more higher protein things and change foods and so fire i think is it like it's such an essential element that anyone who sees it made is like automatically like what how what is that how do you do that you know always so attracted to it too exactly my son in particular well, so maybe I can actually mention how I first met you. It has okay. a lot to do with my son. Um, you held um, 
like a coming of age event for your son, Kai. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes. Um, when he turned, was it 11 or was he nine? He was younger. I think he was about nine. Yeah. yeah. Maybe eight. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With his beautiful mop of hair and, um, and you had done that for your daughter as well mm-hmm. several years earlier. And what you didn't know is, well, so I'm just a neighbor, like down the street and around the corner, and you, I don't know how we met exactly, but you invited everybody in the neighborhood to come to this um, coming-of-age ceremony slash party. Mm -hmm. And my husband Jake and I were like, we don't know this guy at all, you know. Why is he inviting us? Or maybe (laughs) it was a mistake, or I think I wrote you back, and I was like, are you sure you want us to come? And you said, absolutely, you are part of his village. Mm-hmm. And I I had never really thought about proximity as being um, just the fact that our bodies are in homes next to one another, that that was my village. I think I had thought of it as more abstract than mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. But that event that you held, um, so my son must have been like four or five. He was little. Mm. And when you started the fire, when Kai started the fire, because that was kind of his like rite of passage, yeah, you know, the first skills. thing he did on his own, yeah, yeah with his own skills. Um, and we encouraged him, you know, everybody standing around him, encouraging him as he's doing it. My son was so taken with it. Mm. And at the time, he wasn't taken with a whole lot. Mm-hmm. And I just remember thinking, oh, this is. This is why we have these things. This is why we have the old ways and mm-hmm. the like milestone markers like this event. Mm-hmm. And um, a couple of really critical things happened at that event, actually. One being my husband and I had been talking for years about wanting to set up some kind of a coming of age thing for our kids. Mm. And we didn't really know what to do. We don't come from a strong tradition of that. And Coming and watching yours was so inspiring. It's so helpful to see that. But then also, um, I had just been going through kind of a little bit of an identity crisis, I guess. And um, (laughs) I had been wanting to feel like I was a good mother. Mm. And um, I have always had a bit of an edge. And I thought that I was supposed to soften that. And you said... To someone else about me, she's one of our village mamas. She's like a jaguar village mama. And then you went, (laughs) (laughs) and it was not a negative thing. It was a positive thing. And I felt like I, at that moment, I felt like it's okay to be me and a mom. Mm -hmm. You know, it's okay to be me and a good mother. And Mm. um, it's funny, just the tiny little thing that you said, you had no idea what an impact that would have. Um, but all of that aside, a huge part of your events that you hold, you have a lot, I think in the backyard, mm-hmm. um, is food. And a big part of that, if I can speak for you, is coming from El Salvador. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I was born in a village in El Salvador mm-hmm. and, um, I had to leave when I was, uh, about eight due to a war. And my father was involved in politics, and we had to kind of, really? kind of run. He was, he was one of the first to leave the village and get educated, and then eventually became the attorney general of the country. And oh he, a lot of his policies were very much about mm, sort of trying to like 
equalize, you know, or at least he said, I want the law to be the same for everyone, because mm-hmm. right now it's really stratified. Yeah. And that didn't go well, and so they were going to assassinate him. So, so we had to leave pretty quick. And um, so, so yeah, we, I showed up at eight, and in a way, I, I kind of joked that was one of my rites of passages, was just, okay, say goodbye, you're never going to see anyone that you know here again, and, yeah. and you're going to start over somewhere. Not the best kind of rite of passage, obviously. Um, but that short time in the village really, like, I couldn't, I couldn't name it, let's say, at the time. But as I landed, and we landed in San Jose, California, because we had family there, and, you know, I didn't, the neighbors didn't talk to each other or just very lightly if they did. Yeah. Um, you know, it, so it, was, it felt like a very different experience. And I knew something was different, but I didn't know what. Mm. And, um, and as I was growing up, I'd always question, like, like who's my village? Like, it was, you know, that book about the, are you my mother? Are you my mother? Yeah. Love so it, I, yeah. I kind of walked around, you, you know, are you my mother? Right? Like <laughs> groups of kids. And then later on, like music, are you my, are you my village? And, yeah. and then at work, it's like, is this my village? And then different places. And it was like, no, they're not my village. Like my village is where I live. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's the true village. And so that's one of the things I really tried to, um, it's one of the reasons I have events at the house. It's just like, hey, come on over. And, and yeah, I think that event too, it was, it was really great. We were um, kind of rushing. And I, didn't, I didn't have enough food, actually. And my neighbor, Steve, uh, across the way, it was like, oh, he heard, sorry, he heard I was having the event. And he's like, I just caught these fish in the Sierra. There was these beautiful trout, like one of some of the most beautiful trout. And he brought them over. And then a friend of mine, Michael, was like, great. And then we cooked them in the oven. And it was like one of the most delicious was plates. Was that at Kai's thing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. one of them. And then we were making tur- uh, pupusas. And, yeah. But the beauty was everyone bringing a gift. Because, you know, in El Salvador, not that many people have money. So you can't necessarily, like, hold it all yourself. So people just step in. They're like, oh, I'll bring, you know, the extra corn I have. And oh, I'll bring, I've got a pig. I'll, I'll you know... I'll offer that up. And so, um, in a way, it started happening in the events. Like, like uh, Steve would bring over firewood and the fish, and then another neighbor would say, like, oh, I've got these vegetables I'm growing. And so, it really, every little piece kind of added meaning to it. You know, maybe we didn't need it. Maybe I could have gone to the store and got it. But, mm-hmm. like, the meaning of someone, you know, bringing their gift uh, actually just ends up connecting us, I think. Yeah. And so, um, and, and in El Salvador, the... It, at least a lot of the indigenous values were sort of uh, really oppressed and colonialized. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1932, there was a big massacre of anyone who spoke. There was kind of an uprising due to um, uh, Great Depression. Yeah. So El Salvador was a big coffee exporter. That was kind of like the cash crop, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, prices dropped and so the landowners were like well we don't need you to work and then the people would say well we need food and you've kind of taken the lands for your coffee crops um so what are we you know either you know we grow some on there or what do you want us to do and then they said too bad you know you'll starve and so people had an uprising indigenous people and then the government came in and, and really like oppressed and just killed it was they were a fan of Hitler and all this stuff, and so they, they really did a number. And my grandmother lived through that. And she and her family had still worn some of the traditional dresses. Mm-hmm. And um, because of that, like, if you dressed like that, you could get killed. Mm-hmm. So 
she stopped speaking languages, they stopped wearing clothes, but the one thing they were able to keep was the food. Hmm, yeah. So in a way, it was like all that energy, all that transference of, of culture uh, carried through the food and carried through the way of being, right? The, the neighbors still were uh, watching out for each other. If someone was mm-hmm. sick, you still brought them food. And so the food really became the, the, the way to carry uh, the culture forward. And um, because you couldn't really hire people to do stuff for you, your kids ended up doing a lot of the work, right? Right, right. And so at a certain age, especially, I mean, we did have a little bit of different roles for genders. And, and so the women um, traditionally would, would carry the water. So they would partly, they, you know, they carry children in water, so they're life bearers. And so the water represents something um, kind of sacred. Mm-hmm. And then they would also go to the, because they were home more too, they were, um, a lot of times the men would have to go off to remote places to work and then come back like, you know, once a weekend or something. Mm-hmm. So they would be the ones who would go to the springs and bring the water. Um, and so at some age, like the, the little girls would get like a little uh, carrying case, right? A little little pot to carry water. And then they would start carrying just a little tiny, you know, like a cup's worth, you know. It's like warming my Right. Yeah, and, so, yeah. and so that was, in a way, that was the rite of passage. Like, like you are now able to carry some water. Come with us. We need yeah. you, right? Yeah. And that sense of you're, you're needed, mm-hmm. I think we don't do that to our children very much. I definitely do not. Right? Because mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I'll take care of it. Or you're, the only thing you've got to do is school, right? Yeah. But, you know, carrying water, it's like, it's life, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like there's, they're doing a really important thing like without that water carrying. Mm-hmm. And then the, the young men, it would typically be like, okay, come out to the field with us now. Or, you know, the, there's a lot of work with machetes, so they give them a little machete and they could start, nice. you know. And so at, at that event, Kai uh, made a knife uh, with That's a friend of mine. Right. Yeah, a friend That's of mine right. made the blade and then the neighbor actually, um, when someone gave him some walnut wood, and wow. then the neighbor helped them make the handle. Mm-hmm. And then another uh, friend of ours helped them make the leather sheath. And so it was just this beautiful process. And it's, it, the knife kind of came from that idea, like the little machete, right? Oh <laughs> now gosh. you can come work with us. I love and it. So, yeah, that was, and part of it's going from immediate family. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have this nuclear family idea here. Mm-hmm. And the idea then, too, is now we extend further because we know that that we can't carry them through life, right? They, they need all these uncles and aunties in their life. Mm-hmm. And so we had um, six people play a role in, in, his, in his life. Mm-hmm. And there, you know, three of us were part of the family and then three more were extended, like anti-uncles. Mm-hmm. And it comes from an old Lenka story that um, is our creation story. So each person represents a certain kind of energy. Mm-hmm. And... Um, yeah, so, so it was, it's just a nice way. Even now, we often say, like, oh, we should go talk to, you know, your eagle, because that's, like, the vision. Like, if you're not sure what you want to do in life, then let's go, let's go talk to your eagle auntie and then see what, you know, what comes from that. Isn't that nice? It also takes pressure off of you as the parent. Absolutely. I think part of the reason I felt so stressed in the parent role was that I, had, I thought I had to be at all of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. um, and I'm happy to say that we actually have developed, we have developed, especially one family in particular, really is family to the kids. And, mm-hmm. um, and of course, you know, how do we spend time together? We're eating always, yeah, right. always with the tri-tip, <laughs> always. <laughs> That'll bring people together. <laughs> it, it really will. 
Um, I like what you say about culture being carried through with food where lots of other things would be prohibited or, right. you know, yeah. um, outlawed even. I wonder why that is. Is it, uh, is it because there's no regulating that or, um, yeah, well, I think people would have to starve, right? Because those yeah. traditional foods are the ones that, that they know how to make. And like, Everyone in El Salvador makes pupusas, you know, right. and pretty much everyone knows how to grow corn. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you can, you get access to cows to get the milk or the cheese and stuff. So it's usually there. Um, it's a it's a corn tortilla, but you stuff it with um, with beans, cheese, anything you have. Even um, there's I haven't made one yet, but there um, we live by the our major river, like the Mississippi River. It's mm-hmm. called Rio Lempa. Mm-hmm. And it, they would have these schools of really little tiny fish that would run through. And then at certain times of year, you could just grab a basket and basically grab a basket of fish and then dry them out. And then um, they used to make one where they would just kind of crush the dried fish and then put it in the pupusa. So anything you have, you just kind of wrap it in there, put it on the griddle, and then you've got this instant like carrying pocket that you can bring to work, you can bring to the field. Right. So a lot of our foods are actually kind of like, um, you don't need a fork and knife. You're the just kind of handheld food. Yeah. So the tamales are kind of like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I, I did a story on tamales one time, um, and I learned that a lot of people, I, it may just be a legend, but a lot of people think that um, tamales were made for men going off to war so that they could carry it out, you know, have them in pockets all over, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, to be mm-hmm. able to eat in the future, but going off to war, which is, um, there are lots of foods like that. I think empanadas are also, mm-hmm. there's a lot about handheld and yeah. convenience because you have to go and do something, which makes me feel a little better as a mom who buys sometimes <laughs> yeah. some convenient foods. Right, it's like right. it's doing convenience yeah, exactly. <laughs> for years. Yeah. I want to take a minute to shout out to a couple of good friends of this podcast. Consumed is sponsored by Mid-State Containers, cargo storage containers, and refrigerated shipping containers for sale and rent in California. You may not understand how Mid-State Containers could change your life, but the truth is many, many guests on the Consumed podcast use Mid-State for their projects. Containers can serve as wine storage units for case goods, for private collections, and even tasting rooms. They can be refrigerated storage containers for breweries, kegs, and fruit during harvest for wineries. Mid-State Containers outfits coolers and freezers for ranchers, farmers market growers, orchards, and butchers. Containers can make great pop-up coffee bars and berry containers for root cellars. My guest from Season 10, Krista Flieger, from Lonely Palm Ranch, uses her Mid-State Container for an office on her property. Other ideas include schoolrooms, music and photography studios, and there are other things that can be grown, stored, and processed in a mid-state container, so use your imagination and get on their website to request a quote, midstatecontainers.com. Slow Life magazine also sponsors the Consumed podcast. Slow Life looks at what's going on in San Luis Obispo, including the arts, real estate, business, and the people impacting culture here. For the magazine, I just wrapped up my food column on crepes, which you may know as a French street food. But did you know that every February 2nd is the day of the crepe? In France on that holiday, people try to flip a crepe in the pan with their non-dominant hand. And if they do it, they're guaranteed a year of prosperity. See, you can learn so much from Slow Life magazine. Get your copy at slowlifemagazine.com.
With regard to um, those energies that you talk about, and like the eagle and the different, and I remember tortoise is one mm-hmm. of them. Which mm-hmm. one are you? Yeah, that's. Um, it's or funny. today, which yeah. one are you today? Yeah, the interesting part is sometimes you think of yourself as one, and others don't see you that mm-hmm. way. But one of them is the the armadillo, which is sort of interesting. No one wants to necessarily be an armadillo, <laughs> but um, it's also it said it carries like the culture. So they they tend to follow like a path, they get together, they're kind of like methodical and just kind of, um, so I think uh, part of my role has been that, just like, let's find this old path, let's let's see what, you know, what's there in terms of the the, um, ancient ways, right? So so I like to carry those traditions. Mm -hmm. And then... um, the monkey's also this like kind of almost like the the intellectual energy, mm-hmm. and I think that's very strong here in in you know Western culture is yeah. like you got to think it all through you got to like so it, it said that the monkey came and drew symbols on our body, mm-hmm. and then that kind of absorbed in as wisdoms and teachings and and so um, and also uh, just uh, the knowledge of stars and so it's sort of like the engineer yeah. uh, so so I think I, I play a lot of that yeah. Um, yeah, so I think those are my and and the the story is that that you each person has two really strong mm-hmm. uh, energies in them, and then the village uh, honors them for that because that's your gift, right? But they also know that people can get off balance, yeah, like a little too much intellectual energy, right? Like where's your heart? And so if someone is off balance, then the turtle represents like unconditional love, mm-hmm. uh, and so you would actually take them to go see a turtle. Mm. And just say, let's, let's look at this turtle. Let's look how it lives, and mm. and it kind of help balance people out. So, like you said, it wasn't just the role of the parents to do that. Right. It was really everyone saying, ah, oh, you know, notice that that this warrior has too much like jaguar energy. Yeah. And so let's you know let's balance them out with some other energies and make sure that that we don't get too much of that warrior. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, speaking of just the food itself, so you have this oven at mm-hmm. home yeah yeah did you build that oven yeah an yeah. outdoor oven yeah is it clay yes okay and um i uh a good friend of mine went to one of your backyard events and had the chicken from the <laughs> oven and yes. hasn't stopped talking about it <laughs> I know. what I is with to that chicken for you. <laughs> i know someday it's just one of those things that if you're going to light the oven yes. you got to like cook right? yeah yeah it's it's like a four-hour process to to heat up the oven because what you're doing is you're putting a lot of that heat from the wood into the, the clay, mm-hmm. and then it's radiating, radiating back out. Yeah. Uh, so you can almost take out the fire and then just cook with the heat in there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so the, the oven story is sort of funny. It's a little bit of my competitive nature. My father <laughs> makes a really good quesadilla, which is a, a, a Salvadorian um, kind of a cheesy, sweet, salty bread. Mm-hmm. It's, it's kind of what, when if someone comes over, I would say, hey, you want some quesadilla, a little cafe? Mm-hmm. That's like our little, like a uh, social gathering thing. Yeah. And so he made a really good one and I kept trying to beat him and I couldn't, I could just could never get it quite above his. And then I went to El Salvador and I was with a, uh, an auntie and then she had an oven and she made one from her oven and I was like, oh, this would beat his. This competes. <laughs> this would beat, but I said, what's the secret? And she's like, the oven. Oh. And so it adds a little bit of that. It's almost like a smoker, 
mm-hmm. uh, a regular oven, and then uh, like a radiative uh, yeah. heat. Which is different. Yeah, and then yeah. you trap it, um, you put a towel around the oven door, and then you close it, and there's no exhaust. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually just trapping all that. So it's kind of, it's a different co- cooking yeah. of it. And so that, for the chicken too, it kind of, it, it adds that little smoky flavor. I tend to add a little oak in there, right? Yeah. And um, yeah, the outside gets super like crispy, and and and, and the 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 meat stays moist because it's not losing any evaporative heat, right? Or it's not there's no escape. Yeah. And so it's that, not dried that's, out. It's not dried out. So it's 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 yeah. It. One of my my son will get mad about this. He's he's, he's <laughs> vegan. Uh, one of my accomplishments is we had a friend who's. Uh, uh, I think she was vegan at the time, and she was also pregnant. And um, I take out the chicken out of the oven, and I turn, and she's passing by, and she goes, she smells it, and she grabs a leg, and she just rips it off the thing <laughs> and starts chewing on it. And I went, oh, I thought you were vegan, and she's like, not anymore. <laughs> Pregnant women. We want what we want. Yes, and no, we everybody maybe needed. needed it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's too funny. Well, what I was hoping you would say is, well, I make it with this special spice, and you can buy it at such and such. And <laughs> no, it's the oven, isn't Part it? Part of it's the oven, and and then yeah, you can stuff it with different things. But, yeah. But yeah, a lot of a lot of different peppers I like to put in it too. Totally. So everything kind of um, any kind of spice tends to kind of what's the word? Vaporize yeah, and then get in there. Really, or, oh, no, okay, it, it kind of gets in there because it's also very hot. They, you start at around 800 degrees inside. Wow! And then it um, chickens. You, you'd wait till you're near 500, probably. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, with the pupusas and the tamales and everything that you had, um, you didn't have pupusas, I don't think, the other yeah, not night. This but, time. Yeah, usually. Um, but I think. Don't you have family come and help whenever you're doing a big, like, um, assembly sort of a yeah, project? Yeah, yeah, And that's, um, so one of the beauty of some of the foods is it really does take a village to, to make that, like the, the tamales especially. Right. Um, my father, when he was passing away, he, he told me he was writing his, like, memoir, kind of. Mm-hmm. And I was really excited about it. And then when he passed, like, we couldn't find it. And it was just like, oh, no, I can't believe this, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I found one piece of writing that was about eight pages long. And it was all about one of his aunts, the one-year memorial after she had passed. And um, the what they did to make the tamales. And it was like oh. people would came from, like, miles around. They brought their grinding stone, and then they brought some corn, and then they all, like, ground all night. And they had these giant clay pots with fire burning to heat them up. And... It was just like amazing. Like people didn't sleep. Basically, they just worked all night, <laughs> and then people came from all different villages as families, and then they would sort of honor them. Well, thank you for coming. This, and then they would say a little bit about that person, and then they would get like their their tamales, <laughs> and uh, and so that always just stuck with me. Like like wow, like so much love and energy and honor in that. And and he said when he was little, they didn't get much meat, so. When they made tamales, they got a little bit of meat, and it was like really good. And the, as kids, you would just get it in your hand, and they'd be so hot, you barely, you know. <laughs> and uh, he was just so passionate that that story was the story was almost about tamales as much as it was about yeah. culture. And he actually said, "I have to admit, when I was little, sometimes they would send up fireworks, basically saying either someone was born or someone was dead. There was no mm-hmm. telephones, and so you would say, "Oh, over in the village over there." 
we need to send some runners to go look and go mm-hmm. over there. And he was like, I hope somebody died because then we get demolished. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, as a little kid. <laughs> oh, that is so funny. But you know what? That's, that's not super different from the attitude around death that I saw mm-hmm. this past weekend. Total respect, mm-hmm. complete dignity around it. But a real, like, digesting the fact mm-hmm. that it is another milestone. It is. It is. It's like the last rite of passage in a way. Yeah. And there there were some really heavy um, deaths in the past year. Yeah. That um, it would be... I don't think that our culture really knows what to do with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I With the way that it was handled... At your house, it was so dignified and loving and yet really accepting and allowing of the fact that this is part of life. Right, right. So I mean, you, I mean the, the fact is we're all dying, right? It's just a matter of when the, <laughs> when the end point is. Right. And I think we, I was reflecting on in the village and, and indigenous cultures, you see a lot more death when you're young. Like you, 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 you know, you're, you're in it. It's not, you know, I know here, even I've done it, right? Like, like there's a funeral, and it's like, oh, let's not bring them. It's a bit too much, right? Mm-hmm. Partly be- children, you mean? Yeah, partly yeah. because of the way we do them, right? They're, they're like really somber, really, yeah, you know, heavy, and then, okay, run back to work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, instead of this, like, three- or four-day uh, celebration, and, 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 yes, there's mourning, but there's food, and, yes, and there's music, and so... In a way, it helps you accept as you go that these things happen. Mm-hmm. And then maybe when it's your turn, it's not that fearful, right? It's not that. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's obviously accidents. Like we had a young man that passed away that, um, you know, he was in a car accident here, 17 years old, mm-hmm. heading towards Morro Bay to go surfing in the morning. And uh, it's such a heavy weight that you can't carry that by yourself. You need people around you. So we had a four-day fire for him and his family, mm-hmm. um, just because. Where do you go? Like, like if you're by yourself, it, it's like this despair, right? And so, all his friends, all the teens, were able to come any time of day and night mm-hmm. to sit by the fire and and hear stories, or just eat, or just talk, whatever it was. But it's a place, right, to be. It's, it's, it's not... Um, and then if we just do that half an hour thing, the funeral and goodbye, mm. what are we saying? Yeah. Like, you're, like, your life isn't... It's worth, you know, an hour of my day and then yeah. we're off, right? We're not stopping. And so, for me, that was a really uh, important thing to... And we've been part of a different um, kind of indigenous traditions, too, because I didn't have a lot of people here. And so uh, we've had some teachers, Lakota teachers and, and other teachers, and they all have a very similar thing. It's almost like you need about four days. Hmm. Uh, and that they, um, we had a, uh, an elder come from North Dakota, and he said, you need four days because uh, if, you, if you just go through this as fast as you can, you're going to create confusion in you, and you're going to create anger, and then that's going to like change your life or confuse your life for the next ten years if we don't deal with it. In the, if we don't work in these four days, yeah. And so I thought that was a really beautiful thing that that mm-hmm. yeah we got to stop you yeah. know when that happens. I wonder how that plays into things like the 
phases of grief, you know, I, you mm-hmm. know that, I mean, I think I've seen those phases of grief yeah. play out, but if we really did digest it for four days, yeah. Yeah. um, live with it, laugh with it, cry with it, all of the things together, yeah. how could that change that, you know, that next 10 years, that yeah. would be really interesting. Yeah. Did you say then that you, since you come from a place with, you know, strong indigenous community, you come from indigenous people mm-hmm. in El Salvador, that you've connected with indigenous people here. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And that's really helped me a lot. Partly, uh, again, without being immersed in it, it's hard to understand. Like, yeah. like you can't read a book about Lakota traditions, you know. Lakota, uh, what yeah. is that? Uh, yeah, Lakota are the people in um, North Dakota, okay. um, South Dakota, almost... Um, a big part of the Midwest due to okay. the because of where the buffaloes roam is where the Lakota people were, and so that all, actually goes all the way to like to Colorado and the Rockies. Yeah. So it's a pretty big swath, and there's a lot of the treaties were done uh, with Lakota people, yeah. uh, the, the the Sioux Nation or or they called them the um, uh, Ochetisakowen, so the Seven Fires, the people of Seven Fires, mm-hmm. and. Um, in one of the teachings we got from an Adawa elder, uh, it, it was about the phases, and I've been to a number of these fires, and it actually does seem to follow that. Really? And it really helps, at least, it helps to have that mental model. And, and the first one is the first day, everyone's confused, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so they say that the, the dead is kind of confused, and so they're taken to get a little orientation from, from the ancestors, right? And everyone's orienting, like, like okay, who's going to come? We're going to organize food. What are we going to do? So it takes a day just to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Then the second day, they say, is like visitations. So someone might catch a song or remember a story. And so you need to be together so that you can, you can share those things. And then the third day, they say, is really hard. It's like packing day. Mm-hmm. So they come back and they pick up all their things. And maybe the last things you wanted to say to them, maybe it's time to say them. And so that's a day that people have a hard time. And then the fourth day is, is, is like the travel day. So, so now they're going to go. And just having that mental model in place and that, that time, it really felt like that was what was happening, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and so I think even just having something like that to hold people and to have, yeah, of course you're going to be confused today. This is a terrible, right. you know. Right. Once more, I want to give love to a couple other podcast friends. Slow Food Co-op is your friendly neighborhood grocer, maintaining local, organic, and non-GMO standards. Slow Food Co-op sources from local producers, ensuring they offer their shoppers great food and household staples. With a mission to empower health and well-being in the community, they offer local produce, meats, low-to-no-waste foods, and wellness items. You can find Slow's only community-owned grocery store on their website at slowfood.coop and visit Slow Food Co-op in-store at 2494 Victoria Avenue in San Luis Obispo, California. Now hear this. Wine and Spirits magazine named their top 100 wineries of 2021, and the good people at Native Nine Wines in Santa Maria made the list. Not only are they among the top 100 wineries in the world— They are also one of 10 producers from the Central Coast on that list. So side note, go Central Coast, a tenth of the world's top producers. 
Native 9 produces Pinot Noir, only Pinot Noir, from organically farmed, minimally irrigated, hand-harvested vines that owner James Onaveros planted in 1997 when he was just in his early 20s studying crop science at Cal Poly University. James grows eight Pinot Noir clones on his Rancho Onaveros vineyard, and winemaker Justin Willett shepherds the wine to bottle with a distinct focus on whole cluster fermentation. If you've been looking for the right bottle to share at the holiday table or to gift to a loved one, look for the Native Nine link on the consumed website or visit ranchostayonaveros.com. With Dia de los Muertos, um, you talked a little bit at the event about what that's like um, in El Salvador. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about the food scenario. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah, yeah. A big part. The idea is that they're coming, so you're inviting them to to a party, and we're we're actually pretty lucky here because the monarchs um, come to Pismo, right? Right. In in places like Oaxaca. Also, the butterflies come in, and usually around this day, and they say that those are the spirits coming back. Oh. And, and they're so orange it's and like the orange are beautiful, right? And that's why you saw some monarchs in the back yeah. of my head that painted there. And so the idea is we're, we're holding a party, mm-hmm. and it gives you time to to speak to them, even like in first person, mm-hmm. and it, you, you put out the food that they might like. And so a lot of it could be spaghetti and meatballs, or mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's just something that they like. And so I, I make tamales for my father because he loved tamales, yeah. you know. And uh, so it, it, it varies a lot depending on, on what people like. And, and people uh, sometimes bring like a little uh, whiskey or something that grandpa used to like. And then they pour a little whiskey for everyone and they, they tell a story about them. So it's almost like if we were really a village, we would know each other's. Um, yeah. So it's a chance to, to connect a little bit and, and get to know each other's ancestors more. And uh, for me, what really captured the spirit of it was a year after my father passed, I went to El Salvador to the Mitsusuchitoto, which is a, 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 the bigger town near our village. Mm-hmm. And that's where our, the cemetery is for most of my family. Mm-hmm. And they're pretty tight. You know, we've got a lot of population there. And so, the, you know, the, the people are buried actually kind of like one on top of each other. Yeah. And then there's a limit. There's about eight deep that you can go. Mm-hmm. And then at that point, they'll take the bones from the last person and move them into the, the next one. So my uncle recently passed, so they took my father and my grandmother's bones and put them up. But the good thing is they're all like in one tight place. And so when you go and you sit there, someone will walk by on the way to see their relatives, and then they'll say, so, oh, where, who, are you, who are you and what are you, why are you here? And you say, oh, I'm, I'm Alfredo's son. And, you know, oh, let me tell you a story about him. Then you get these beautiful stories, and one after another, they keep coming, and you're, you're just like, wow, if I wasn't sitting in this place right now, yeah. it's almost like they came to visit me mm-hmm. from their actions, you know, and, and the impact they had in the world. And it was so impactful to just think about that. Wow, that he affected all these people. Yeah. 30 years later, they still remember him for the things he did, you know. And it was, there were beautiful stories, all of them. This one man was carrying this giant thing of flowers, and I was like, are you a relative? And they're like, no, but, but one time, you know, uh, my son had gotten in trouble, he had ended up in jail, and we called him, and he came. And, and, and at, at that point, um, you know, people are trying to feed themselves sometimes, so they might steal a little a piece of corn or something, and then that could be a life sentence, you know. Right. Uh, and so, so just, but they're like, he was this 
most important lawyer in the country, and he comes back to the village. It was like four hours, you know, later to help my son, and so. Uh, but all these stories just just kept coming out, and it, it really felt like he's visiting me right now, and I'm growing, and I'm learning about him more, and mm-hmm. the relationship continues beyond the, you know, the, the this life, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Your father sounds remarkable, also. <laughs> yeah, there was, there, he was definitely was an interesting character. Yeah. So you do go back to El Salvador? Yeah. Pretty, yeah. pretty often? I try to go at least once a year. Okay. Uh, and and that, that actually is my favorite time to go, mm-hmm. is, is because everyone gathers at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also go with um, Chief Chavez, who's a Tlenka chief, and then I go with them for kind of like cultural uh, adventures and admissions. And um, teaching, so so that's that's also my favorite it's thing to do. Huge part of your life, and yet yeah. it's not your day job. No, not the day job. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your day job. I like what you were saying about almost setting up, like organizing digital villages in a way. It was really interesting. So what do yeah. you do for for money? Let's yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. So I got so I landed in San Jose, California, mm-hmm. and it was you know the uh, Silicon Valley and all that. And um, I remember getting a computer or. or seeing a computer and then they said you can talk to anywhere in the world with this and that really appealed to me like oh I can talk to people back you know back home Mm -hmm. and so I was always enthralled with the idea that we can communicate across you know space and time kind of thing Mm -hmm. and um, so I got really enthralled with 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 software and 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 games and stuff like that and uh, ended up working at um, Cartoon Network for a while. That was actually my, the coolest job I had. A lot. And I was a community engineer, huh. uh, partly because I helped kind of design how uh, basically fans would interact and there was communities. And then we ended up uh, bringing people in to help us develop the next part of the game. So it was kind of like crowdsourcing early on. Wow. And then, you were on site, or huh? was it a yeah? It was on thing? site. It was okay. it was in um, it was in um, Atlanta. Okay. So I spent some time out How there. My, my wife went to med school out there, so I, I followed her and then landed in there. And so a lot of that my work was like, how do I use technology for good? Mm-hmm. And then I started noticing more of a trend of kind of dehumanized workplace, mm-hmm. like treating people kind of like machines instead of like living systems mm-hmm. or living yeah yeah ways of working and so I, you know um, I'm like this director of public cloud engineering mm-hmm. and that that's my role and title but I try to do a lot of um, we call it connected leadership I, I work with with uh, a mentor and friend of mine Mark Morey mm-hmm. and we brought a lot of the technologies that I've helped I, I, I kind of have that engineer's mind yeah. and so whenever I see an event or something that works well I'm always like show me the you know the engineers behind us I want to understand what, how this works and so we brought a lot of those village technologies into the workplace and how like how one works with another how do we build something together yeah yeah, yeah. exactly and even I mean super simple things sometimes uh, like even one thing I'd like to do with my team every few meetings is like hey let's start with gratitude Mm-hmm. You know, what are you grateful for? And all of a sudden, everyone understands each other. Like mm-hmm. someone will say, I'm grateful for um, my wife's life because she got in a car accident last week and mm-hmm. she's survived. And, but those things, because we're so busy like doing, 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 mm-hmm. we, we forget about being, being, being. And so it's, it's kind of like helping people just, just to remind them that they're human beings first. Mm-hmm. And then through that, 
if we acknowledge that and we and we do that, then the work gets done so much easier, like so much more grace. And you know, we don't always need to, we don't need to treat people like machines, right? Which is the so I would say automate the machines and humanize the humans because we're we're trying to like automate the humans and that doesn't work that totally. well. Totally, yeah. I'm married to an engineer, so I get some. <laughs> I do. I get some of that for sure. Yeah. And as you're talking, I'm thinking about COVID and remote work and how that's really changing um, in some ways for the good. Really, more a little more flexibility, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. more independence, but at the same time, I think there's a. Yeah, a a threat of yeah. people becoming less and less human, off in their own little hole, doing their own thing, right. and reporting in. You know. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, so um, I want to think about your kids now, just a little bit. Sure, yeah. So what? Well, I guess what do you eat like at home, and are your kids into it? Are they into the culture that you've created? I mean, it's in their space. Yeah. yeah. Um, and do they? Do you think they'll perpetuate that? That's a. Re- I mean, I think about that a lot. And 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 in the end, I, like, I don't know. Yeah, right? you, can, right? you can't control. It's really, them. it's really hard. Um, I think through food, that's probably, like I said, that's probably my, my best chance to keep some of that going. Yeah. Um, my daughter sometimes <laughs> she's she went to like this alternative school, uh, very nature based outside, and she kind of um ended up going to Cuesta for the for the more like um what's it called? Like general ed, general kind, of ed stuff. kind of stuff. Yeah. And then kind of accelerated accidentally through high school because you get like more credits if you go through Cuesta. Mm-hmm. And so for the same class and almost less time. So it was almost easier in some way. It was kinda of interesting. Yeah. And uh and then it had more flexibility for her schedule. So it actually was a was a pretty cool plan. But it didn't have any much social, you know, quest like yeah. that. And so uh, Outside Now ended up providing the more social and more outdoor time. And that's the school, Outside Now? Yeah, it's a okay. school, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think she went through a more kind of village-like experience. Yeah. And... Uh, and I think sometimes she feels like she might be a little misfit in the in in the regular world, you know. She's like, yeah, because we were gathering at Finn's fire, and um, someone said, "What they say?" Oh, they said, "Oh, have you noticed any synchronicities or any animal activity, you know, uh, after Finn's passing?" And and then. She said, yeah, no wonder I can't get along with regular people. <laughs> like, they don't ask me these things. No, <laughs> you know, right. They ask about this movie star or this other thing. So, <laughs> so I think that, you know, maybe, maybe. It, it, it is a harder path in that way and that, it, it, you know, you're not quite fitting into to, to the, the world that is at the moment. And, um, and Kai has gone more, a little more traditional and he's, he's kind of at, at slow high. Oh, but yes. I think he also feels that um, he's like, Papa, don't they know that kids aren't meant to sit, you know, for like seven hours straight? And then each teacher's like, you should have one or two hours of homework. And so much homework. Like, you know, do you not do the math? Like, if you got five classes with two hours, that's 10 hours. Like, what are we teaching the kids? What are we saying, right? Like, oh, you should go after work. You should bring home like six hours of work. Right. The, you know. Right. So, um, so I think it's that's been very challenging is trying to keep, or even, like I said, we pause for four days, right? Mm-hmm. And how do you do that in school? Yeah, without, there's not a lot of grace for that. Yeah, and so they, you know, teachers, everyone said we we kind of understand, right? 
But they said, we'll, we'll just make everything due on Friday. And this is with one of their own students. Uh, he didn't. He also was more like off grid. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But, the, but they're same a age. Student, same you know, age. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So it makes you really wonder, like, wow, what do we have to like? What do we give up when we have such a like a production schedule for yes. school? Right. Like they didn't even say like you're forgiven for that work. Mm-hmm. They said, no, you take those four days and you make it up. Which like after grieving, time. right? And so, yeah. it's that little thing has actually been really hard to kind of. It's been a month or so, and we're still kind of. I mean, we're still impacted by the, by the event, and there's this extra stress of trying to like catch up in some way, right? Right. Yeah. Right. When there really is no catching up. Yeah. What's yeah? What are we catching up to? What's mm-hmm. you know this the race to nowhere kind of thing. I mean, I when we talk about it like this, I think, yeah, but then the moment you leave, I'll be click, click, click on my, you know, <laughs> right, right, I'll be right. racing along. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, take, even taking a moment like this on a podcast yeah. with tea, um, it's, it is a little pause, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like what you were saying earlier about we're actually dying right now. Um, I guess I want to ask you what... What do you want your impact to be? You've done so many things. I know that we haven't even covered. We haven't touched so much of what you've done. Um, what do you want at your four-day fire? What do you want some of those stories to be about you? Hmm. That's a good one. Uh, I think I think that aspect of I think there there is kind of a worldview difference, mm-hmm. and uh, I do think. Indigenous people have carried kind of some of the the we are a whole, we are all connected. Mm-hmm. You know, those those are really short words, but the the real meaning of that is 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 huge, right? Like we're connected, like you said, to the food we eat. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're connected to the ground. Then you're connected to everything that's poured in the, the ground. Weather. And so, it's like it's all just interconnected. Mm-hmm. And so, if if I can just help bring just a little bit of that to to um, my community, my family, and, and, and wherever I have a little bit of impact. And that's, I think that's, you know, it's a life's work right there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I noticed um, this last time I was over that uh, your entertaining style is something to behold because everyone is welcome. But it's not like um, the fine china's out. And I like that a lot. <laughs> I like that. It's so easy to put pressure on ourselves to, well, nobody can come over until it's perfect. Right, you know? right. And, um, I'm guilty of that. But I just loved, not that it wasn't perfect back there. It was mm-hmm. exactly perfect for <laughs> having people over and doing, you know, accomplishing that task of visiting with ancestors, learning about them. Which, by the way, the one that I brought was my my maternal grandmother, Nancy Lurkey, who um, was a tremendous woman and who I didn't realize she died when I was 21, 20 Mm. or 21. I didn't get a chance to be an adult with her, really. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if I had, we would have seen... I would have had more grace for myself because Mm. she was um a like classy beautiful educated woman who had gone through a lot of hard things Mm -hmm. had come from amazing privilege and wound up um on her own quite a bit and 
I I don't know. There's something about that Jaguar mm-hmm. that she had and that I think we could have connected on. But I brought her. Mm. Um, she she was very much of the Mad Men era. Okay. Um, she had a husband who was all of the Don Draper in all of the same ways, worked on Madison Avenue, um, an ad man. And um, I don't think my grandmother cooked a whole lot. I think my mom could probably attest to that. <laughs> but she made a really mean salad. And um, we always appreciated that about her. The dressing was always like perfectly light, <laughs> nice. lots of garlic. Um, and so anyway, that's what I brought. And I, it was a cool exercise because I had to think about her quite a bit. Yep. And what would she bring to this? And um, yeah, it was really meaningful. And I think the fact that you're putting your, you know, the, your fingers of, of, that without in the community with other people having to think that way is really that's slow work mm-hmm, yeah but meaningful work yeah yeah no i've got some teachers that say we're on a 200 year plan <laughs> and you know people don't think that way. <laughs> right no yeah. gotta think generationally yeah. at that point well let me ask you what i ask everybody when i finish up which is if it were it's very appropriate if it were your last day on earth mm-hmm. and you wanted to eat something anything what would that final meal be, and what would you drink, and who would be there? Uh, yeah, I think it probably would be tamales mm-hmm. uh, and pupusas. There's something about uh, when we when we gather the whole family. There's everyone's doing this like patter with their hands, and there's usually this laughing and like just joking and just that sound. I think when my dad was passing, he he moved. He went to El Salvador his last mm-hmm. like month. And we were kind of mad. We're like, but we're all here. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. And then when we went to see him, I was like, oh, I know why. It's like the the coconut, you know, straight out of the water, out of the coconut. So all his familiar childhood home, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, that that sound and the, the smells, even the firewood, right? So I'd be around the fire. Yeah. <laughs> and, and um, yeah, I mean, as many, I, I definitely have a, like a group of like, village aunties and uncles mm-hmm. that just that nat just being with them and and we joke that it could be they could say anything like like oh yeah i tied my shoe and everyone would be like oh really which way did you go this way or that <laughs> and it, it was a kind of this no television yeah uh culture and so everything is like interesting <laughs> like everything and you're just like well, sometimes other families like, wow, you guys can talk for like six hours about nothing. About nothing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, we didn't have TV. You know? <laughs> what else did we Yeah, right. So I think having some of those people around and obviously my, you know, my kids and, and my immediate family. Um, I've got a lot of teachers throughout the, the world. And so I'd love them to be around just because they've, they've helped me. Um, be who I am and, and could help me transition through it. So I think kind of that rite of passage, mm-hmm. I think there is, we don't consider that um, moment, the dying, as a time to to do that last bit of work. I think we get a little too caught up in the stats, like, oh, my blood count's down, or this yeah. is down, or maybe the next surgery. To, and then all of a sudden the moment comes, and you didn't tell someone that you loved them, mm-hmm. you know. And so I think uh, I would try to do as much as possible not to 
worry about the stats, you know, and then focus on any last, you know, repairing that you that I could do at that at that time. Yeah, and have, and have a good laugh, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for sitting with me, telling me about your life, the way that food weaves through it, and your family. Yeah. No. Thank you for having me. That's it for another episode of the Consumed Podcast. Consumed is produced by me, Jamie Lewis, and edited by Chris Lambert. To learn more about any of the guests you hear on the podcast, visit letsgetconsumed.com. You can also sign up there for the Consumed newsletter, where I share recipes, side stories, and more. Until next time, thank you for getting consumed together with me.